real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everyone. Nathan Romas with you again. And today, uh, as I had posted online, we got a blast from the past here. <laughs> Specter Regan James is with us. And just a little bit about Regan. He was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta. He graduated in 1986 from the University of Alberta with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. He worked for Alberta Corrections for a couple of years before joining the Edmonton Police Service in 1992. He worked in areas ranging from North Division Patrol, communications, as well as several traffic specialties, where he was also qualified as an expert in collision reconstruction. Regan promoted several times over the course of his career and worked in several areas as a result. He uh, later promoted to inspector, where he was the duty officer for a few years. And duty officer, uh, maybe a general definition, is kind of the, it's the highest ranking operational officer on the street, who's generally responsible for the high-risk events that uh, occur, but oversees the entire city. Uh, Regan was also the duty officer at the time of the Dan Woodall murder, as well as Edmonton's largest mass murder. He finished his career with the EPS as an inspector overseeing tactical canine flight ops and disaster and emergency operations. He since uh, had moved to Ontario, where he continued policing at the Legislative Protective Services as the Staff Sergeant of Operations. Here he was part of a response to the Freedom Convoy, along with several other services. And now he is back in Edmonton, happily married, and looking for new employment. Always looking for new employment. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, welcome, sir. Great to have you back here. Good morning. Um, maybe we'll uh, kind of get into a little bit about you. So tell us where you come from, what it was like growing up, and yeah. uh, how what led you to policing? Uh, you know what? I was born and raised in Edmonton. Um, total North End kid. Um, half Ukrainian, half English. So I had a Baba down in Beverly. So I spent a lot of time down around 34 and 118 Avenue there, haunting the the 7-Eleven for Slurpees and that kind of stuff. So um, it was no surprise that uh, when I left Corrections in 1991-1992 and I got on with the Empty Police Service, uh, I wanted to go work in what was at that time called Londonderry uh, Patrol or uh, North Division now, as it's called. So uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, in the early part of my career there haunting the streets of uh, Northeast Edmonton and looking for stolen cars and looking for strange oddities of things. So uh, started out as a pretty good uh, dynamic sort of career in Londonderry. Hmm. Um, in terms of, yeah, my personal situation, I've uh, been happily married now for over 20 years. Uh, second wife, uh, not uncommon, obviously, in policing to... To, to wade into the waters of marriage more than once. Mm. Uh, but no, this one seems to have stuck. And I think uh, she's a very patient, intelligent woman. So uh, thankfully, that's uh, kept kept me straight and narrow. So, Well, and we'll let's go back a little bit. Uh, when you were a kid, like, is there anything that kind of led you into policing? Or you, what kind of kid were you? Uh, you know what? I was, uh, it's interesting because as a youth... 
there was one thing I could not stand, and that was organized sports. I was always like a skier, mm. um, played tennis with my buddies or whatever, but never played hockey, never played football, any of that. So it it does seem a bit odd that I would end up in a such a team-focused kind of environment organization. In terms of why I gravitated to policing, that's an interesting story. I was actually thinking about this last night. Back in the 70s, because I am 30-something. <laughs> I won't tell you how old I was when you graduated yeah, university. Let's not get into ages. <laughs> but uh, my grandmother, who I would spend weekends with a lot of times in uh, the uh, northwest of Edmonton, had a police radio. And back in those days, you could just dial the police radio in. And yeah. she had a real obsession with listening to this police radio late on Friday and Saturday night. So we would sit around, uh, me in my pajamas and her smoking a cigarette and having a coffee back in those days. And we'd listen to the police radio. And somewhere along the line, I just got a real interest in all that went on and, and that sort of thing. And I just sort of drove my, my career towards that after that. So, uh, yeah, and like you're saying... Most people, I think they look for, or sorry, when recruiting is looking for people, they're looking for people that are involved in team sports or have that kind of background, but you never had any interest in that? No. Just preferred your own thing? It's an interesting subject actually to, to start off on. And and I had this discussion with many of my colleagues when I was still with the Edmonton Police Service, and that was in the recruiting thing. And, and what do we look for when we recruit? Um, and I mean, that's a, such a broad stroke, right? Mm. Because do you focus on people that are in a team sports? Do you focus on post-secondary education? Do you focus on um, someone that's been in the law enforcement program or, or, or whatever the case may be? Um, and my position was always, how do you seek out people that just want to be a cop? Yeah. And that's their thing. That's just something they've always wanted to do. And I'm not sure what the test is for that still to this day. I'm not sure. How do you ask someone, hey, do you really want to be a cop? Yeah. Well, and I think you see it just with recruiting numbers. There's always recruiting numbers are right, uh, way down right now, but uh, you kind of see that they have trouble finding people, but it kind of goes in waves, I want to say. They never really have the solution to it. And there's just lots of ideas about who they want or what they want from people. But Yeah, and I mean, again, I it certainly speaks to whatever uh, theme of leadership is going on at that time in any organization. I know when I was out in Ontario, we had a theme of leadership that wanted a certain sort of dynamic as far as how we hired people. Um, and I was part of those hiring processes. But mm -hmm. it's very difficult to come out and just say, hey, um, tell me why you really want to be a cop. Because yeah. you get the canned answer all the time, right? I want to help people. I want a dynamic career. Um, I want job security, blah, 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 blah. So... Is someone going to come out and tell you, you know, they sat around with their grandmother and listened to the police radio and that's going to make the difference for you? Probably not. But when you have those unique stories, that's probably the more genuine person. That's yeah. the person I would look for. Be like, oh, okay. You know, and there's a part two to that story too, Nathan. And the, the funny part is, is I always tell people there's there's a few reasons why I wanted to be a police officer. And, and that was one of them. That was kind of the, the seed that planted. Um, but one of the other ones was uh, I was driving with my family. So I would have been only, oh, I don't know, 17 or 18 years old. And we were going up uh, southbound on 111th Street from 63rd Avenue. And there was a bit of a, a Sugarland Express of police cars coming lights and siren towards us in the opposite 
direction flow mm. traffic. And it was at that moment that I saw those police cars ripping by. That just solidified it for me. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, that is a dynamic career. That is something that I want to be a part of. And I just couldn't get that out of my head. And every time I would see you know, a police officer with somebody pulled over or whatever the case may be, I was drawn to that and I was always interested in, hey, what's going on over there kind of thing. So yeah. um, it just builds, I think, for for a person who has that integral thing in their psyche that that's what they want to do, it builds. And in my case, that built. Well, and I said on here a few times, uh, for me, it was just, I watched too many movies. So I had a different view of uh, maybe what policing really turned out to be because it's mostly paperwork. But I <laughs> well, thought it was no uh, shortage. jumping out of buildings and driving cars yeah. real fast and yeah. all the action. Yeah. So, I mean, it does happen, but it's just, it's not as, it's not like the movies. <laughs> no, it's not. And I think once people, sometimes they get in that career and they realize, holy smoke, there's a, there's a large administrative component to this mm -hmm. career. Uh, well, so when you, as you were going kind of through school, what uh, kind of kid were you? Um. Some that know me will be very shocked to hear this. Uh, I was an honor student. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, it, you know what? I got in with a really good group of people in junior high, uh, one of which I'm actually going to have lunch with here after this. Um, and they were all very focused on grades and, and doing well in school and that kind of thing. And we were those nerdy kids uh, that would sit around on a Friday night and do our entire math course for grade 10 or whatever the case may be. So, um, I again, I was not the stereotypical out partying, having a good time. Um, I'll reserve that to my university years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think most of the guys I've had on here, uh, they are more... Not so much about the partying, but they are just more outdoors, more geared toward you know, doing the the wilderness stuff. Um, and then that kind of leads to a job where you're not in an office. Yeah. Uh, I was always into camping, always into skiing, always into, mm -hmm. you know, snowshoeing, that sort of thing. Uh, we had a cottage up at Long Lake, uh, north of Edmonton kind of thing. So um, that was always my dynamic as a kid. And uh, for sure, in terms of a policing career, um, the thought of being tied to just sitting behind a desk would probably drive me bananas. Yeah. And yet, ultimately, as you become a senior officer, what do you do? You're tied to a desk. <laughs> Quite a bit of it. Although, and we were saying this just before we started, um, you were definitely one of the more operationally geared duty officers. So people knew you because they saw you at scenes. They saw you at all the uh, the events. So some of the function has changed a little bit now. Like they can be in an office more and, and watch things on a screen. But um, yeah, people knew you as somebody who was there. Yeah, I know there's a real push towards intelligence centers mm -hmm. and uh, having a sort of a centrally focused uh, duty inspector or leadership where they watch uh, at a distance. That really does come to a style point, I guess. Um, my opinion was always, you know, how how are you going to teach the newer members or mentor those newer members how to cultivate what is commonly referred to, you know, as proactive time and and seeking crime out? Um, how do you mentor that from an office? Um, people that would argue against my point would say, well, you have sergeants and staff sergeants that can do that, and and I don't disagree, mm -hmm. but at the same time. Um, I think it shines brightly that a senior officer would be out there on occasion um, digging things up that, you know, you wouldn't expect that guy to dig up or gal. Well, and, and 
I've had these conversations with chain of command and, and different areas of management. Um, there is a difference from uh, a difference between leading from the front and leading from the back. And it seems like my own experience seeing people on the street, uh, they are more inclined to follow you into absolute hell when you're out there in it with them. Uh, if you just come in after the fact and then tell everybody, hey, you all did this wrong. Well, <laughs> you know what kind of response that's going to get. Yeah, the Monday morning quarterback doesn't usually pan out very well. <laughs> Especially in this job. No. And, and to be fair, it, it, I would say it's, it's because this job uh, is life or death for yep. a lot of people. Yeah. Not just police officers, but for the public. And um, yeah, it's it's hard to take criticism when you're the one in the fight and then somebody else isn't. So Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was uh, plenty of large events where it is incumbent upon you as a leader to step back, mm -hmm. be in that command post, or even just be in your Tahoe for you know, lack of a better command post or whatever the case may be and, and oversee things because you cannot be the guy standing there with a the ram, you know, in your hand, smashing a door in. Um, but I think there's a lot of lead up smaller events that you can take part in and show your value and show um, the newer members and, and the existing older members that mm -hmm. you're a part of the package here and you've, you've had your own boots in the mud and the guts and, um, when it's time to step back and be in that command post, they actually do take advice from you and say, yeah. well, the guy actually has done some stuff too, so maybe we'll actually listen to that guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Uh, so what uh, you kind of go into corrections first, and what made you go there for a few years before joining police? Uh, when I got out of university, <clears throat> I think it was as simple, Nathan, as seen an ad in the paper. And I, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know what a newspaper is. It's this paper thing. And yeah, I, a bunch I'm of the <laughs> last generation to see <laughs> <Okay>. these things. <laughs> so, uh, and funny enough, I had been working, I started out my law enforcement career at Sears. Um, so I worked there as a store detective at Sears. A lot I of just, people won't know what Sears is. Okay, so it's like the bay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I worked at at for the lack of a better term, a department store mm. uh, in undercover security. And then I ended up working for London Drugs, uh, quite a large chain, obviously, in uh, security. <clears throat> and it was funny, you know, I had uh, a job offer to go work at a large Toyota dealership in sales. And I stuck with the law enforcement piece. I was just like, no, this is where I'm headed. So uh, corrections popped up as, a, as an ad in the paper or whatever the case may be. And I applied and I got on what's referred to as wages back in those days. So a casual employee. And uh, that just extended itself into full time. And um, no slight on corrections. Uh, I have a daughter-in-law that's in corrections and she loves it, federal corrections. And, and now a daughter that's likely going into federal corrections. Uh, it wasn't for me. Um, you are tied to a correctional facility. You're not out roaming around. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a unique, it's a unique skill set that I will leave to others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I just think of corrections as uh, you just don't get sunlight <laughs> and you're inside. Well, and you know, it, it, you may find this hard to believe too, but when I worked at the Remand Center, which was right downtown next to the police station, it's obviously defunct mm -hmm. now. Um, you could smoke in there. Oh, really? Both the employees yeah. uh, and the uh, the inmates 
So I would come home, much like a guy that works at a fast food chain smelling of grease, I would mm-hmm. come home smelling like cigarettes and BO, and uh, it, was, it was a unique experience, let's just say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did, because um, I hear this from a lot of people who work in corrections, though. so if you make the transition from corrections to police, usually there's some people you met in corrections, like the inmates, that kind of transition out onto the street. Did you have any of those experiences where you run into guys on the outside, guys or girls, if there was any girls in there? Uh, not a lot of chance meetings ever. Um, I will say, though, uh, Ez Farone's killer uh, was on my unit uh, when I was there. Uh, that had just occurred. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jerry Cruz was on my, my unit. So, you know, just too close for comfort sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Folston, I don't think, was on my unit, but Cruz was. Um, and then another guy that I always remember was, and I was just a younger guy. I was only 23 or whatever it was when I was in corrections. So to see someone come back from their court date and be sentenced to life in prison was quite an impactful thing at that time. And a guy named Daryl Dodds had murdered his girlfriend in a uh, sort of a cocaine-infused rage, and he got sentenced to life. And then, geez, about 15 years down the road, I was an EPS member, and they always had that on the road again uh, publication. Yeah. And there was Daryl Dodds, guy that I watched go to jail. He was on the road again some 15 years later out, out in society. Boy. Yeah. Interesting, though. Yeah. Yep. How do you find, uh, when you're working there, the relationship at that time uh, between the, we'll say, the guards and inmates? It really does depend on a few things, and it depends on what floor you're on. Um, mm. So I worked the third floor, which was, you know, you got touched up for fraud and you're in there, so you're not a heavy hitter. Uh, I worked on the fourth floor, which was heavy hitters, uh, guys that are waiting on remand or waiting on sentencing for murders. Um, <clears throat> I also worked the mental health floor. So in terms of a relationship, you don't really build a relationship with guys on the fourth floor. Very dangerous. Mm. Um, you don't want to get in a friendship or uh, any kind of social interaction sort of scenario because they will spend 24 hours a day, as you can well imagine, uh, trying to work that to their advantage. Imagine they're very uh, much more manipulative. Yes. Yeah. Uh, whereas when you work on the third floor, you're in more of a pod with an open door. Guys come and go up to the door. They ask you for stuff. They need to go take a shower. They need, you know, fresh linen or whatever and it's more a, a casual open sort of atmosphere um i think to be honest i was very much too young and too immature in my own law enforcement career to really worry about building relationships yeah. with guys i was just trying to survive every day <laughs> <laughs> well so then you kind of make the transition over to edmonton police in 92 uh can you talk a bit about what made you want to transition at that time but also uh what was the recruiting and application process like in 92? You know, the um, the why would certainly be um, that stagnant kind of atmosphere. Um, and I'll just comment on at the time what the atmosphere was there within the correctional system. Mm. Uh, it was very negative. Uh, a lot of negativity. Um, just not a real positive workplace, to be quite honest. Um, all my friends, all my sort of cohort were all moving towards that process of getting on with Edmonton. Um, I think I had actually been deferred. Yeah, 
I had been deferred the first time when I applied. Um, that you know the the very standard not enough experience. Hey, go out and get some some more uh, um, life experience. I think it was the common phrase that you always got. Yeah, they never guys. tell you get more experience in this. Yeah, just just go get some more <laughs> life experience. So, um, it it was a different, in my opinion, maybe because I saw it from a different perspective. It was a really I embrace the vibe now at the time when you're in it, you're like, oh my God, this make this end and make me be a police officer. Mm-hmm. And when I look back on it, it was actually quite entertaining because you know, you're you're in the gym. And at that time, I don't know if you know who uh, Dr. Dave Wiles was, but he was in charge of the fitness programs back in the day. I've heard the stories. Yeah, he was referred to as Dr. Death. Yeah. Um, and you had to do the anaerobic bike and you'd feel like throwing up after and you're doing chin-ups and dips and all these things and writing all these tests and going for uh, for interviews. And and when I look back on it, it was actually kind of an entertaining time to get hired. Um, I will say, and I say this to anyone um, that's a prospective recruit, that when it's your time to get on and you're good to go, that process will be easy. Um, I went through the entire process twice. Once was a no and once was a yes. And the time that was a no, when I look back on it, there was no for a good reason. I I wasn't prepared. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas when I went through it and I was successful, it was just smooth as glass. It just cruised right along. Um, Similarly, promotion. You know, um, when you're ready, it will go very smoothly for you because you're ready. You have that skill set. Yeah. Uh, When you're not ready, it just will fall flat on its face. Well, when you were going through the application process, was it still the uh, like the eight steps or whatever it is today? It's personal disclosure, behavioral uh, interview, polygraph, like all that stuff. Yeah, I did the polygraph. You did the psychological. You mm-hmm. had to do uh, an interview. You did the fitness test. I think you wrote a test first, and it was like a general knowledge test. Yeah, kind of ma- some math, English. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so if you got past that, then you went on to the fitness. And um, and then if you got through the fitness, you went to an interview. If you went through the interview and got past that, then it was off to polygraph and psych. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, backgrounds. Backgrounds were not as substantial as they are now, I don't think. Do you remember uh, how long your polygraph t- test took? <laughs> it went over two days. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to say it was about a... The test itself was, you know, it's like 20 minutes. You yeah. Know how that rolls. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the disclosure discussion, I'm going to say, is probably two and a half hours. Okay. Thereabouts. Mine, yeah. when I went through with the RCMP, it was about three hours. Coming here, I came as an experienced officer. So they right. asked questions on like two, two and a half years of stuff. Uh, so it was pretty quick. But with the Mounties, it was about three hours. And I remember getting to depot and everyone was kind of talking about their experience going through all the steps. And, uh, one guy said he was in there for like eight hours. I was like, what the hell did you disclose? <laughs> what are you disclosing? <laughs> it made them question you for eight hours and, and yet you still got on. So yeah, he didn't know what it was apparently, but. But he got on. <laughs> yeah. Clearly he talked his way through it. I was like, I was sweating in there. Uh, I couldn't yeah. imagine being in there for eight hours. <laughs> it's funny, you know, a funny story about the polygraph. Uh, I still remember to this day, you, you they ask you, you know, the standard questions. Have you been deceptive about Mm-hmm. Uh, criminal activity, drug activity, um, your disclosure of your medical information, blah, 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 blah. And they go through all these things. And he, he preps you, as you remember. He says, I'm going to ask you these questions. 
So you're, you're ready for those questions. And I still remember, then he throws in this last one. He says, have you been deceptive about anything? And I could literally feel my heart pounding out of my chest. I'm like, ah, ah, I don't know. (laughs) And he kind of looks at me and he's like, hmm, uh, oh, interesting reading on that one. I'm like, oh my God. He goes, is there something you want to tell me? I'm like, uh, I'm just trying to think. (laughs) But I got on too. So clearly I got through it. (laughs) You don't want to think. Yeah. You want to forget everything. I want to forget everything. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, So you get through into training and what was training like for you? You know, it was funny because when I went through training, Nathan, they had gone from a very much of a military-based sort of style to a more um, adult learning mm-hmm. for a few classes. Um, I wouldn't say it was all smiles and chuckles. Like, I think it was about every second or third Friday, we had stress day, which was a fitness thing that you um, learn to sense the taste of your own lungs yeah. <laughs> you know but in terms of the classwork and all that kind of stuff um that's where i'll give it up to the newer members i think there is uh, much more to learn nowadays in terms of, we're a much more litigious society than we were back in those days uh use of force was uh substantial but i didn't think it was terribly overwhelming or anything like that the fitness part um, we were really left to be adults. You were given a, a playbook to play by every second day, I think it was, and you went out and ran. And some weeks you were in trouble, so you ran 10K instead of five. But um, yeah, you know what? We were actually we were treated pretty well, mm-hmm. I got to tell you. And, and back in those days, it was interesting. You never did any extra work. You mean after like the day was done? Or? Yeah, like uh, I hear stories. Like we have a very good friend of ours. She's a, a newer member. I think she's been on about three years now. Um, they did lots of work, you know, in the mornings before they got to class, or in the evenings, or on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were a Monday to Friday, eight to four thirty kind of operation. That's how I remember it here. But obviously, depot was Different. much more paramilitary. I mean, you live on base, so they yeah. make you do things till about eight at, or sorry, till about eleven at night. And then you were up at about four to get ready for parade square at six. Oh, yeah. Because you got to do all the ironing, bed sheets, and I'd rather be a fireman. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can go do that. They're, no, they're hiring right now. <laughs> Don't think I'd make that fitness standard anymore. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you get through training. You're out on the street. Uh, back then, it was uh, North Division was one giant. It area was. of the city, like a whole yes. half of the city, essentially. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of the experiences you had throughout uh, your time on the street? Yeah, Londonderry was different um, in that, much like what you just said, it was a big geographic area. So what would be now Northeast and Northwest um, and parts of downtown even was all Londonderry. Mm. So it would not be unusual on midnight's to let's say you're deep, you know, in Beverly, 34 and 118. And there's a call up in Castledowns. Mm-hmm. And whereas now we have very much district-focused kind of policing and area restrictions and that sort of thing, not back in those days. So, you know, my ability to drive at ridiculous speeds at that time was was uh, pretty well honed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? And give it up uh, to organizations refining what is important and what isn't. Back in those days, intrusion alarms, we went to lights and siren, you know, uh, anything. 
basically a leaf fell out of a tree and that's what you went to lights and siren back in those days <laughs> there was not as much uh overwatch let's just say of yeah members back then did they still have duty officer was it kind of structured the same way uh as i remembered back in those days the watch commander uh who was in charge of the, the division he only worked until, uh, let's call it three o'clock in the morning. And then similarly, I don't believe the duty officer really, really worked past that either. No, sort of a call out thing. But keep in mind, I mean, the call volumes back then weren't as mm -hmm. substantial. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So it was a different world. It was uh, like I can remember uh, going to a call with my, at that time, partner, Jim Gurney, who's now retired. A uh, very well-known member, and it was a gun call. Guy had a gun in his house, and and now, I mean, there's a process for that. There's you know, there's Overwatch, and you might call tactical in, and you contain, negotiate all these intelligent mm -hmm. things. Uh, back in those days, the sergeant said, "Well, deal with it." Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, we would just deal with it. We go bang on the door. Yeah. You know, which <laughs> thank God I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> for some of that stuff. I can imagine. There's a lot of moments where you look back uh, and you think. Yeah, that could have been the end of me. Yeah, you know, and and back in those days, uh, I won't name names, but uh, my sergeant at the time had a big shotgun out. We had a suicidal male, and instead of letting him drive away, the sergeant walked up to the car and shot the back tires out. Really? Yeah, it was very much cowboy-type policing back <laughs> in those days. And, you know, ACERT, there's no such thing as ACERT back in those days or, yeah. or any of that. So it was, it was definitely a different time. Uh, I will not say it was a better time because I think there's a smarter way to police and we've probably moved our way towards that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was there's certainly a lot more stories out of that time. Than yeah. Now. Well, um, can you talk about some of the, uh, uh, I think you spent most of your time in traffic? A lot of it, yeah. Uh, and at various ranks. Yeah. Uh, just not as a sergeant for the entire time in traffic. Okay. Yeah. I thought it, uh, when I was looking at the bio, I thought it, you went there as a constable and promoted oh, well, within yeah. there. Yeah. As a promoted rank, I was okay. only one rank, but yes, I was there as a constable. As okay. Well. Um, I know more about your background than you. <laughs> you know what? It's fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, can you tell us a bit about working in that area? Because yeah, like you got qualified as an expert in collision reconstruction. There was one unit that you had listed. Uh, uh, it was like if somebody crashed and they die in the vehicle, like so fatal has, collisions, yeah. was it actually called fatal collisions unit? It was referred to as fatals back then. Fatals. I'm not sure what it's referred to now. Uh, it's probably just collision reconstruction unit or something along those lines. But yeah, um, yeah. Or major it's, collisions. Maybe it's, um, major um, major collision investigation. investigation I think yeah, is what it's called. Yeah, now. yeah. So what uh, can you tell us about some of the experiences there? Because I know I've been to some pretty epic, devastating collisions, and I've seen people in pieces all over the place. Um, I imagine you saw a lot working in that unit full time. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, one year I had nine fatals that I was responsible for, um, which is a lot of fatal collisions for one guy uh, emotionally, because you're dealing with all the families and that you're mm -hmm. kind of a one-man show uh, back in those days. Um, yeah, I mean, there are certain fatal collisions that still haunt me to this day. Um, I can remember a young fella was uh, hit by a car on his 18th birthday. Um, and I was uh, part of that file. And the poor guy was literally cut in half. Um, mm. And uh, it was just um, 
one of those things, uh, an event, uh, an unfortunate turn of events that the father had come looking for him because he was supposed to pick him up the bar. The kid had done all the right things, uh, not driven. He had called his dad for a ride and uh, dad showed up and was looking for his son and kept seeing all these police cars and kept driving by and finally got up the gumption to come and ask us, uh, you know, hey, who's, who's under that tarp kind of thing? And we're like, well, who are you looking for? And he gave us the name, and we went and got the driver's license. And sure enough, there was there was dad standing right there. So not a good way to do uh, a notification by yeah. any means. Well, and sorry, so this kid wasn't driving. Was he a passenger in the he, car, or is he just got? Sadly, had got tired of waiting for dad. Yeah, um, because I think it was about one in the morning, two in the morning, in fact, because. The person that hit him was a server at a restaurant and she was coming home from work later at night. So he got tired of waiting and he decided he'd go out on the boulevard. And uh, we're not sure if he decided to uh, urinate or what he was doing out on the boulevard, but he fell off the boulevard mm. right into the flow of traffic. And this poor lady just, unfortunately, it was just all about timing. Yeah. And, and struck him and cut him in half. We just had... Uh... Uh, a very similar incident. Uh, was it last year or maybe two now? Right in front of the Pint downtown, mm. Jasper One Hundred Ninth Street, and somebody was out in traffic. Uh, apparently, there was a lot of witnesses that back up the driver, saying like this person was running through traffic and um, got hit by a nurse driving home from work and dead. And yeah, just. <laughs> Yeah, some of that stuff just sticks with you. Like, we had another young guy. He was, um, I think, broken up with his girlfriend that day. And so he was quite frustrated by that experience and was driving in circles, like up and down the, the white mud at high rates of speed. And there was all kinds of reports about this crazy driver. And he finally lost it um, and hit, hit the side of the Quinell Bridge and then hit a pole and this, the truck was like ripped in half. Mm. And it was right close to Christmas, either right before or right after. And I remember it was a call out. So back in those days, uh, there was no 24 7 coverage. You just you get a pager or phone or whatever the case may be. You know what a pager mm -hmm. is, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, pager goes off and I show up at this thing. It's like three in the morning and it's freezing cold. And, and sadly, this truck had, you know, been reduced in size to probably, I don't know, five feet long instead of 20. No. And you could look inside and sort of see the young gentleman's head and you could see still the hot air coming out of his chest and that mm. sort of thing. But the haunting part was he had a cell phone and the cell phone kept ringing in the truck. And so sure enough, it was the mom trying to get a hold of him on this cell phone. There was all the Christmas presents were strewn all over the place. So um, again, some of them just stick with you and, and that's another one I, I could go on and on and on and tell you about stories of, yeah. uh, fatalities that stuck with me, but that's another one that's just, it's Christmas and he's a young guy and just an unfortunate way to lose your life. Yeah. yeah I always wonder that too, cause I, I have a, a few I can think of and just, I don't know the reasons why it sticks with you, but yeah, there's just something either yeah. it's, you know, Christmas time. Like I always, for some reason, I remember a lot of things that happen around Christmas. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe just because you think that's supposed to be a happier time of year. And then all of a sudden, 
you're dealing with some really epic tragedies, um, which one we'll kind of get into about the mass murder that you were on scene for. But um, yeah, it's just wonder what the reasons are why those things yeah. kind of come to mind. And the sad part for that family is that now Christmas is it's ruined. Yeah, maybe forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and I guess people don't think about that the uh, the after effects and the years yeah. that it yeah. can last for. Uh, so from the, there, you promote a few times, uh, maybe we can ask. Tricked them three times. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was going to ask, what made you want to get to inspector level? Uh, you know, it's funny when I got promoted to sergeant or when I was going through the sergeant process, I thought to myself, wow, if I could just be a patrol sergeant in the Edmonton police service, that'd be it for me. Mm-hmm. That, that'd be good. That'd be solid. Um, and then of course, uh, as you get a little further on in your career and you do some more things and you um, see that you can make an impact, and I'm certainly not saying by any means I was the greatest uh, leader. Uh, there's lots of great leaders out there that I work for. Um, but once you kind of get that leadership bug and you start to enjoy the process of building a team, and having people work for you and being productive. And you also see that you can kind of mold your your own day. Mm-hmm. Like, why wouldn't I want to work for me instead of working for that guy or gal that I don't really appreciate their style? Why don't mm-hmm. I be the style? Um, and that just seemed to work moving up the ranks. Uh, once I became a sergeant, um, it was funny. I... It, I was going on vacation to Hawaii when the staff sergeant process came out. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't have time for all this stuff. Back in those days, you had to do a book and, and like build a binder, I think it was referred to. I'm like, I don't have time for that. I'm going to Hawaii. That's my priority. I sent my boss at that time an email with all my qualifications. And I'm like, there it is. That's, this, that's what I can do for you. And sure enough, they're like, okay, we'll come and do your interview. Um, on such and such a date. And I'm like, well, I'm just back from Hawaii that morning. I'm flying the red eye. And they're like, well, that's the date. Take it or leave it. Oh, geez. So I came back with no sort of preconceived notion that I would get promoted. I was like, well, I've kind of winged it so far. Let's just keep winging it. Had probably one of the best, best interviews of my life. Really? I had a really good tan. <laughs> and yeah, I got promoted to staff sergeant. And then I had another really good run uh, as a watch commander downtown. I, mm-hmm. you know, I learned a ton working there and had some really amazing people that worked uh, with me, both uh, sergeants and constables. Do you know what years you would have been the watch commander down there? Um, I would have been the watch commander from about 08, 08, 09. To 11. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just before I got here. So I got there, it was uh, uh, Malcolm. Malcolm Allen. And yeah. then uh, Dave Goodkey. So yep. Goody. it was yeah. 2013. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and I had already um, moved to the third floor, like the investigative floor, mm. uh, by then recognizing that I had had an entirely operational career. Yeah. And it, you really... Like it or not, you need to see at least two of the three sides of the house. You know, mm-hmm. you, you got to either pick the admin and the investigative or the operational and the admin or whatever your choices are. That's yeah. the three sort of streams that I see. 
And I thought, you know what, I've done absolutely nothing on that investigative side other than fatal collisions. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up in target defender section. I took a staff sergeant position there. It was very interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you had uh, target offenders, which going after uh, the people with- High-risk offenders, yeah. The, yeah, the big warrants. Yeah. Uh, A-10s, we dealt with A-10s, behavior assessment unit, I believe it was called. And then there was some of the covert stuff. Yeah, that's. I actually ended up moving out of TOS, and uh, I took over an area called Specialized Investigative Support Section, mm-hmm. SSSSS, so it was Specialized Support Services Section, mm-hmm. which was surveillance, uh, Part 6s, um, Special I, uh, the wire room. Um, I mean, funny enough, Nathan, all stuff I really know nothing about. <laughs> but now I do. You're there to sign checks? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would you say? I couldn't follow anybody. I couldn't follow a blind man down the street without getting busted. <laughs> you just got to direct people to do it. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, having worked on both sides, though, what would you say is kind of, I'm guessing the operational side is your more of your yeah, my forte. forte. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then you moved over to duty officer and you spent a few years there. Yeah. And that's probably where I know you best from. I think most people know me most like from the duty officer side of things mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, and I already said like you, yeah, you were known as one of the more uh, on scene duty officers. Yep. So um, can you, maybe we'll get into a couple of the events, the, the bigger events as a duty officer that you were a part of. Um, the first of which would have been the mass murder. So that was December 29th, 2014. Um, there was Christmas again. Yeah. yeah right around Christmas, New yeah. Year's. Uh, so Fulam was, uh, had shot eight people, uh, family members and two of which were kids. Yeah. Uh, and you were one of the first one people. One of them was his kid. Yeah. One well, was, yeah. uh, step kid. Something like that. Yeah. Um, There's some discussion around that. It's not, uh, okay. I'm not at liberty to get into that. So. But uh, you were one of the first people on scene, if not the first. So can you kind of just take us through what it's like, um, not so much the operational decisions that were made that day, but just maybe what <sighs> what it was like being first on scene and the, because we talked a bit about the mental health side of things, but yeah, what it's like being first on scene for one of these. The... um. It's it was kind of a reverse actually because the last person that he murdered was uh, a young lady mother of three named Cindy Duong. Um, so that was the last one that he murdered, but the first one that was discovered or not even discovered that the husband called and it was uh, and I, and you'll know this all too well, Nathan. Um, call comes into EPS communications. Uh, my wife's been shot through the window, something along those lines. Mm. And it was uh, up in a very nice part of Edmonton, uh, Southwest Edmonton. And I was actually just on my way home. I had just started my set after Christmas. And uh, I was driving up to Willinger Drive and this call comes out that uh, this guy's on the phone and says his wife's been shot. And he, he, you look at the neighborhoods and you think, yeah, he's probably, she probably got hit by a pellet gun or something. It's going to be fine. So I'm like, yo, that's your eight one. I'll, I'll head over there kind of thing. Mm. So I go over there. Sure enough, here's this beautiful, uh, you know, $800,000 home. And I walk up the, the front walk and it's freezing cold. 
And it, there I can see the door is now swung open. And there's the husband, poor guy, uh, with a phone in his hand. And he's still online with 911. And his young, perfectly innocent wife is lying in a puddle of blood coming mm. from her head. Um, and I uh, had the sad misfortune um, to watch her die there. And, you know, you get three young kids that are screaming in the house. Again, Christmas presents all over the place, hockey equipment, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Traditional, nice working family yeah. sort of thing. So, Yeah, I think uh, from what I've seen on the job, uh, especially when you involve kids, I find that the hardest thing. Yeah, just because they're so innocent and you don't want to see that thing, uh, those experiences no. happen to them. No, you but, don't. Um, so you were off at that scene and then the yeah. scene in the north end gets discovered. Yeah, so it's it's really a, a, a weird scenario because the, the initial scene where there are actually um, seven deceased. Mm-hmm. Seven. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if they included him in that number. He wasn't at the house, though. He was in Borden's Gap. Yeah. Um, so I go back to the office after having dealt with this homicide. It was all very unusual. Um, of course, you know, you, you have to question why does somebody walk up to a home and shoot this young woman in the head? There's got to be more to the story. There just has to be. Um, it can't be random. A Vietnamese family. And so I go back to the office, have supper, whatever the case may be. And then the watch commander for Northeast Division calls and says, hey, um, we're at this other call, this house up north. They know nothing about the Southwest call. Mm-hmm. It's it's immaterial to them. It's just a homicide. Whatever's happened out there. Not just a homicide, but it's a homicide. Uh, but we want to make entry. So... As you, the duty officer, you need to come by here and say, yeah, it's okay. We're going to basically break into this house. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they're looking for is uh, a dad who's in his late 50s. And he said some unusual things to his daughter. And they're worried about his uh, his and his kids' uh, family whereabouts, that sort of thing. They can't get an answer at this house. So uh, sure enough, I go there. It's in a little cul-de-sac up north. And there's already members there. They've done a curse research around the house. They can't find anything unusual. And so sure enough, we make entry. And um, just a really overwhelming scene uh, in terms of the amount of blood. Uh, You know, you walk in and right in your feet is all this dried blood. And you liken it to... um, like a TV horror movie mm-hmm. kind of thing. And I could see already on the floor, I could see a spent shell casing. Um, so I call the team up that are all standing there kind of waiting for me to walk in the door sort of thing. Um, and we make our approach and we go through the house. And unfortunately, you know, we're calling out deceased people throughout the home. And then uh, as the night goes on, investigatively, we start to think, okay, Vietnamese family, Vietnamese deceased on the other side of town. A lot of the details, and we'll get into the details, but it became obvious that it was all mm-hmm. part and parcel. Yeah. And then he was ended up uh, committing suicide up at a restaurant in Fort Saskatchewan. Yeah, he actually worked up in the restaurant. I think the restaurant was his ex-wife's place, and he worked mm-hmm. there. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, some of, was there any kind of, we'll say changes that came as a result of that or on the like EFAS, so our employee family assistance, uh, did, I know they call them out for a lot of things now. Was that 2014, would they be around then? Uh, EFAS was around then. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Cause I remember getting a phone call myself and, mm -hmm. and having that discussion. Um, probably more brief maybe than other discussions i at the time was um i think in some respects you're kind of in shock that you've just dealt with that and you you know you certainly don't want to be the one that was the the guy that walked in the, the front door on two massive murders but unfortunately i was but yeah efast was involved and, and i'll take you back actually a step and here's the impact to um some members we had a female member as part of that team, and it doesn't matter what her name is. Um, she kept on going upstairs because she had to keep looking at the young female deceased, very young, and making sure that wasn't her own child. Hmm. That's how she was stricken by it, that she was so impacted that she just had to keep reassuring herself that that wasn't her daughter upstairs. So yeah. that, that's the kind of different things that people go through when they see this kind of stuff. It's... Uh, it could be overwhelming to some. I think a lot of people don't realize these things happen in our city. Uh, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people kind of put this over in like a war zone and think that only happens overseas uh, and they can kind of separate themselves from it. But um, uh, yeah, there's like a few times a month, there's probably some serious... Uh, I'd say on average, a serious event like this where people are walking in and seeing dead bodies and, um, you know, it's, it's very close to home, but also uh, thinking about the mental health for the members, um, how they get impacted by it. Like even in the moment, you don't know what everybody's thinking. And I would never think to even look at somebody like if the member there is going upstairs and keeps looking at this, I probably wouldn't even think twice about it at the time. But um, to kind of follow up with people after the fact, do you know, was uh, anybody else, did any other impacts come out of that? Did anybody else kind of step forward and say, like, this had uh, uh, has changed me in any way? Yeah, I mean, as you can well imagine, uh, the next night on parade, lots of discussion about the event, and those discussions just kept on going. I know uh, myself, uh, I met with my own, a um, couple watch commanders that were involved. Actually, it was a sergeant, sergeant and a watch commander. And we went and had dinner uh, the next night just to kind of, you know, calm the waters sort of thing and, mm. and try to normalize. Um, and it, it comes from all sides, though, because now, because that was such a, a, a egregious event that occurred in Edmonton, which we consider a safe city, mm -hmm. um, here you are sitting in a Boston pizza and you can tell that people are looking at you in uniform and they know you're a part of what that was. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're sitting there and you are trying to digest with your cohorts, all of us senior guys at the time, just trying to rationalize. Yeah. What did you see last night? Um, I can tell you, uh, like we sort of said in the pre-discussion before we, we hit the tape there, I can still see the positioning of bodies in the house. I can relive that event in my head. That's how impactful that was mm -hmm. on that night. One of the things in talking to guys who have military experience here, uh, 
we get into kind of that digesting of things um, and just how much time you get to digest something, how much time you get to kind of rehash it. For, for police, like you're saying, you're at the first scene and just, you know, a little bit later in the same shift, you're going up to the next scene and who else knows what, you know, the other things you went to in the same night. Um, but if you look at the military guys, the ones that, uh, you know, were in the world wars, some of them, they tried to bring home over like the course of a week and put them on a boat and you take like a week coming back and you're kind of telling the war stories with everybody. And, uh, it's part of the mental process, right? But as police officers, you don't really get that. I never thought of that till a few of the people mentioned it. I was like, I don't think I've ever heard of that happening, at least not with police. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what all those processes are. I was never really a part of any of those units. Um, I know those units do uh, do good work, and they try and facilitate um, healing for things. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that as an organization, there's obviously uh, benefits if you feel you need professional help to reach out to somebody, and I strongly suggest that you do if if that's the case. Um, I know myself, as my career went on and I extended my time as a duty officer, like I always used to say, I actually use this as a bit of a lecture statement, is that if you're a police officer and you uh, get your shit bucket is half full, Mm -hmm. you're probably fine. Um, But when your shit bucket gets full, you probably need to dump out the shit bucket and go do something else for a while. Yeah. whether that be an administrative position or whatever the case may be. Um, I, my shit bucket got full mm-hmm. at a certain point, And that's why I transitioned more to a, a Monday to Friday um, kind of job within the police service. Yeah. Just because my wife even said, you know what, you, I can tell that there are things going on in your head that you're not talking about. So it's time for you to get off the, the mean streets of Edmonton for a yeah. while. <laughs> well, and we'll kind of fast forward a little bit because um, we're going to run short on time, but uh, not even was six months yeah. later, you deal with Dan Woodall's murder and you are part of the response to that. And we're not going to go through all the details of it. No. Uh, it's been in the news and mm-hmm. everybody else gone through it already. But um you know, that's a major, major event, very close to home, obviously, one of our own uh, goes down. But um, you said some good changes came as a result of that. Can you kind of talk about some of the changes that came out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time, and you never want a Monday morning quarterback, what what guys are doing on the street. Uh, I was a duty officer that night. I was given a set of facts in terms of entering the home or not entering the home. Um, I said, yep, go ahead. Um, and Ultimately, the worst case scenario occurred. Uh, there was no expectation of that gentleman having a rifle. He did. Um, the changes that obviously were positive, uh, and I guess this will be Dan's legacy, is that we no longer, uh, and I'm assuming it hasn't changed in the last four years, um, it certainly was was set into motion when I became, or, or when I carried on, was that we contain and look for other options before we do a dynamic entry into a house. Um, yeah. You being a G unit, I'm sure you utilize tactical all the time. They typically do a contain and call out. Yeah. Um, that was not the case um, probably 
10 years ago, I think there was a lot more dynamic entries. So I think the positive that came out of that is we've uh, invested more time in waiting people out, waiting for them to leave the next day, contain and negotiate, uh, that kind of things. And you never know how many lives we've saved in terms of police members. And I think you'll probably see that Canada-wide, that, that uh, contain and call out is a much more standardized practice. Yeah, it's basically if if you have the time, slow down yeah. and you know just kind of take account of all the factors and, and yeah. look at the situation. Do we need to do anything in a hurry? So it, there's a command principle when you become a critical incident commander uh, in Ottawa. They talk about the action imperative. Mm-hmm. Why now? What's changed? Why why are you bushing down the door? What's changed? Um, if you have an armed subject and he's got his partner or wife or kid in there. Um, if he's not screaming, saying, I'm going to kill X, you keep talking. Yeah. When the action imperative changes and that individual says, I'm done with life. I need to, I want to talk to my mom. I want to do this. Uh, I want my kid to be buried, blah, blah, blah. Okay. What's changed? Why now? Well, what's changed is the, the, um, the, the narrative. Yeah. The, the rhetoric. Now we have to make a plan mm-hmm. and we have to action that plan. And as a commander, you really have to listen to your negotiation team, listen to your tactical team, take those two folds of information, put a, a risk-effective decision together, and make a decision. Yeah, um, That is one of the biggest features of leadership that I would impress upon guys that want to be a leader. You will have to make decisions. Well, and <laughs> one of the things... I know it's hard to believe. Yeah, well, and what I think a lot of uh, management doesn't get to is that deciding to not do something is also making a decision. <laughs> so, if clearly stated, yeah, um, yeah, we're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. We're going to fold up our tent. Uh, I went. I had a number of uh, suicidal individuals where I was the incident commander, and we had the doctor talk to the gentleman or the lady, and the doctor gave me his or her best advice that no, I, I, we've made a contract. The person's going to come see me in the office tomorrow, and I'd say okay. Well, we're leaving. Yeah. Yeah. The decision is we're doing nothing. Yeah. Yep. And um, you know what? Surprisingly, or maybe not, a lot of times that works. Yeah. And it just diffuses everything. And and you gain credibility with that individual for the next time that you deal with them. You Mm -hmm. say, you know, Bill or John or Jenny or whatever, we were here last time. If we go away, you're going to come see the doctor tomorrow. Yep. Okay. Well, we're going to fold up our tent and we're going to go. Yeah. It doesn't always work, but it, but it, it is a tactic. Um, and just so we do get to it, uh, just in the last few minutes that we got with you, uh, you once you retired here, is you finished your career as the duty officer, or sorry, not duty officer, as the inspector in uh, tactical canine, uh, a few of those areas. And then you went to Ontario. Uh, can you tell us a bit about, uh, about Ontario, where I see you took a demotion? To staff well, I didn't take any motion. <laughs> <laughs> My wife told me I had to go to work. <laughs> uh, the reason we moved, actually, my wife uh, transitioned to a better job out there within the same company, and, and mm-hmm. the head offices are, like always, they're in the east kind of thing. So um, I kicked around there and uh, renovated our house for a period of time, and then that got old, and, and uh, it was time to get back to work. And I saw the same kind of thing as, you know, when I got promoted to staff sergeant, ironically, I saw, or my wife saw an ad on Indeed or one of those Mm -hmm. places, child post boards. 
And it was like on a Sunday morning. And the posting closed on Sunday night. And I'm like, eh, I don't know why I want to do that, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that, ah, whatever. I, I put in for this thing. And sure enough, I, I get this job. Um, and it's uh, a, a very different scenario, policing in a legislative assembly. Um, Ontario is not like Alberta. Uh, Alberta, I believe, relies on the sheriff for exterior, mm-hmm. which is armed. And then they have a bit of an interior presence. Uh, Ontario, as you can well imagine, has 125 members of parliament. It's a much bigger uh, location. It has a armed police service component that I was uh, there, the staff sergeant of operations for. And then there's a security side, which is more of the internal stuff. Um, it's a different world. Mm-hmm. It's a very different world. When you, much like you would probably say, Nathan, it's different from RCMP policing to municipal policing. Yeah. When you deal with the legislative assembly itself, you have members of parliament and they have expectations and it's, it's very, it's political. It's just political. Yeah. Well, and you were a part of the convoy response, but what, to what degree were you involved in that? So uh, I won't get into the minutia of what um, was discussed, obviously, but I was a mm-hmm. part of all the intelligence conversations. Uh, every day we would have uh, what's referred to, and I think they even talk about it on the the uh, tribunal there, is the Hendon call. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was across Canada, largely OPP, but uh, an OPS, uh, discussions about what was going on with the convoy and what they were coming and doing this and that. So I was in charge of all the preparations, the planning preparations for the Legislative Assembly of Ontario, which is in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, there were small factions that would show up at the ledge uh, in, uh, in Toronto, but largely the response focused around um, Ottawa. Did you ever uh, get the chance or opportunity to go right down to Parliament and see kind of the scene? No. No? No. We're a small service uh, in Toronto there, mm-hmm. so you're sticking close to home and, and, mm-hmm. and providing protection for home base. Okay. Yeah. It's it's a very interesting watch. I mean, I don't know if any of your listeners are watching sort of the tribunal. It, it's an interesting thing to watch in terms of preparedness. Yeah. Well, and it just, you know, it, unfortunately, it always takes a big event to kind of, ex, I'll say, expose a lot of the cracks in the things we do. The, you know, what can we do better? How can we communicate better? Are we prepared for certain situations or not. Um, so a lot of that's kind of coming out in this. It, it is. And, and I'll, I'll give you this little tidbit. The interesting part in Toronto was this, that as a result of the goings on in Ottawa, um, and again, never want to be the Monday morning quarterback. I don't know, uh, you know, their own closed door discussions around their preparedness and what they were doing was their, their shtick. Um, but as a result of what was observed uh, in Ottawa, Toronto police put together an enormous um, response preparedness to convoy because the convoy tried to move into Toronto. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had, you know, buses, uh, cats, Mm -hmm. um, dump trucks, creating all these gridlock points where unless you were somehow trying to ram a gravel truck with your semi, you were not getting into downtown Toronto. And it was yeah. very effective and incredibly manpower consuming though. I'm sure that cost the city of Toronto. I don't even want to know. Yeah. And they, well, I mean, Toronto 
I would say have more experience in these things than say Edmonton. They had the G G twenty twenty G eight G twenty G eight. I'm not sure, but yeah, yeah. So and it's just it's kind of the center of a lot of things. So, but police, got, I'll say this though: policing is no different in Toronto than it is in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the one interesting part of of my cross contamination of policing in Toronto is they heard my stories and I would hear theirs, and and there's no difference. Yeah, policing is policing. They have six thousand members. We have. 2000 yep. um keeping in mind that uh you know toronto the gta is 3.7 million people mm-hmm. or something like that um so it's just exponential with the size of the city but the problems are the same yeah so where where are you going from here what's the plan in the future i don't know i'll come back in a year and i'll tell you <laughs> <laughs> are you just Looking for job opportunities or just kind yeah. of relaxing right now? Uh, you know, I just uh, feeling out a few things and uh, we'll see where it goes. But I, I'm still uh, a little too young to back her in just yet. Are you going to write a book? Uh, like I'm going to become all? a professional podcaster. There you go. <laughs> I'm not a professional in any means. Uh, it's even going though it's well. I think it's going pretty it's well. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, no, we appreciate you coming in. Hey, it's been a pleasure. for the time. So, and we'll look to get you back on whenever you're, Get another job see, with some see if new stories. An update. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll end it there. All right. Thank you.